This is episode 34 of the History of Podcast, Breakfast Cereal. I'm Robert, and I'm glad you're tuning in, and I can tell your day is already getting better from this point on. The sun is shining a little brighter, and the air is a little sweeter, because you listened to the history of. To start, I have the egg carton count, and today's egg carton count is... It's 46, which means that there are 46 egg cartons all around this teeny tiny studio, and uh, so we have a better sound dampening, which which the sound engineers here at the History of are very happy about that. And if you're listening to this episode because you're interested in the history of cereal, you will really love episode 30, The History of Veganism. There's a lot of overlap between the two episodes, and there are a lot of common themes, so I assume you're listening to this episode because you're interested in the history of cereal. You would also like that one too, the history of veganism. So check that out. And some of the predecessors of cereal were oatmeal and grits. Now, oats were an English classic uh, along with porridge, which was could be oats with leftovers. I've actually never had porridge. I don't intend to ever have porridge. Grits were introduced to American colonists by Native Americans. And in the 1800s, big breakfasts were becoming trendy among the European upper class. And in America, meat was becoming more widely available, and bacon, eggs, or sausage were the most convenient for breakfast. But even then, something could have been improved. It wasn't perfectly convenient, and breakfast could be, could be made quicker. Bread certainly wasn't an option, because bread would be stale by the time, uh, by, by the time of breakfast, and to make it fresh takes hours, so that was certainly not an option. That was out of the question. And this is just one one theme, is the convenience of cereal. And there are other, other themes of the reason to create cereal and why it would be successful later on. But also the Industrial Re- uh, Revolution, it left less time for breakfast because of the long work hours. And in the mid-1800s, a movement now known as the Clean Living Movement started, which supported vegetarianism. And people like Dr. James Caleb Jackson believed meat-eating was harmful to the digestive system. In 1863, Dr. Jackson introduced his granula cereal. Not granola, but granula. And this might have been the very first cereal. It consisted of little pebbles or pebbles or granules of dried-up grain served in a bowl of soy milk. It could be with cow's milk, but soy milk was might have been the preferred option because that went along with the the whole plant-based diet. So a name to become familiar with with this uh, the starting of cereal is Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. You're probably already familiar with the name, but he was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he believed all forms of bodily enjoyment shortened your lifespan. And stimulants, quote-unquote stimulants, like sugar, salt, and alcohol, wasted your body's, quote-unquote, vital energy, which resulted in a shorter life. And Kellogg also believed refined white flour was missing out on a lot of nutritional value. And he was pretty ahead of his time on this conclusion. And he was a big whole wheat guy, and he encouraged a grain-based diet. So he ate mostly grain, and he wanted to have the blandest foods possible. I don't know about that one. Um, But with the Seventh-day Adventist church, Kellogg uh, opened a sanitarium. So not not a a sanity sanitarium, but a, a sanitary sanitarium for people with primarily digestive issues. And this was referred to as the SAN. 
and many of Kellogg's products, he experimented with creating new products for these people with digestive issues. Uh, Many of his uh, new products were dextrinized, which means they were cooked until brown and dry, giving a longer shelf life. An example would be toast. And after some experimentation, he created little dried granules of wheat, which could be eaten in soy milk. And at first he called it granula, but that was already a thing, and he changed the name to granola. And so, actually, fun fact, granola started out religiously. And Will Kellogg, John Kellogg's brother, started a marketing campaign for sanitarium foods like granola. He was the big salesman, the, the salesman counterpart to, uh, to John Kellogg. John Kellogg just wanted to make cereal, but Will Kellogg wanted to sell it. And Kellogg's cereals inspired a man in Denver, Colorado named Henry Perky. He came up with a way to run cooked grain through rollers to make it into shreds. And these shreds were then folded on top of each other to make little pillows. Sound like shredded wheats or frosted mini wheats? Well, that was the the early predecessor uh, of shredded wheats. The frosting would come much later. But this shredded wheat product, it wasn't crunchy like it is today. It was actually soft. And so it didn't have a long shelf life. And Henry Perky didn't want to sell the cereal. He actually wanted to sell the machine that made it so people could make it at home. And Kellogg, with his obsession of cooking the life out of cereal, altered Perky's cereal so it would be crunchy like the shredded wheats we have today. And then we get into cornflakes. So we've had shredded wheats, we've had granola. Now we get into cornflakes, which are considered the first real cereal. The Kellogg brothers hated each other, and that will... Um, that'll be a common, that'll be a theme in, uh, in the next few minutes. And so the, the Kellogg brothers, they, they made it hard to determine who exactly invented cornflakes because they kept stepping on each other's progress and claiming things for their own. And one time in 1898 at the sand, a batch of wheat cereal was accidentally left out and it got moldy, but they didn't seem to care too much. And it got flaky, and they baked it until crisp. And after further revisions of the recipe, the ingredient for these flakes was changed from wheat to corn. And so that's where we got corn flakes from, actually from an accident. And these, at first, these were called granos. And, but remember, the, the Kellogg brothers, they, they hated each other. So Will Kellogg bought the rights to the recipe. And in 1906, he founded the Battle Creek Toasted Corn Flake Company. And remember, John Kellogg wanted just he just wanted to make cereals, but he also wanted to make them as bland as possible. And Will Kellogg, to sell the product to the American people, he added malt, salt, and sugar. So I'm sure John Kellogg was beside himself with that. And in 1920, John Kellogg sued his brother, uh, his brother Will, over the right to use the family name in his company. And the case went to the Michigan State Supreme Court, and Will Kellogg won. The next cereal that we get came in 1909, and that was from Quaker, or which we now know as the Quaker Oat Company, and they introduced puffed rice. So we're getting these varieties of cereal coming along. We have cornflakes, uh, granola, and now we have puffed rice. And there was a former San patient uh, from the sanitarium named C.W. Post. Also sound familiar, Post cereals. And he saw an opportunity for market entry and made his own version of cereal called Grape Nuts. I don't think I would eat anything called Grape Nuts. That's just, that name just kind of weirds me out. But it was similar similar to Granula, or the early granola. And 
Post claimed its cereal would cure rickets and malaria, which would later cause some some legal problems, and he might have to go back on that. But Post made another cereal called Elijah's Manna, which he also had to con- he had to discontinue that one because that offended some people, of course. But Post was a threat to Kellogg uh, in in the business world, and he even found a way to secure the legal rights to a cereal machine Kellogg had helped invent. I don't know how he how he got away with that one. But in the early 1900s, nutrition researchers discovered and named several vitamins and along with them vitamin deficiencies. And to prevent deficiencies, we got the rise of fortified foods. And cereal specifically was fortified with iron and B vitamins. Those nutrients usually come from meat, but because Americans weren't eating as much meat for breakfast, they could get their vitamins and minerals from cereal. So just another selling point uh, to buy cereal. And in the 1930s, a cereal called Shredded Ralston was introduced, which is uh, renamed the familiar Chex that we know today. And in the 1940s, we got Cheerios, which actually started off as being called Cheery Oats, but Cheerios was much more catchy. And with the baby boom after World War II, cereal marketing uh, was geared more toward children, of course, because there's a boom of babies. And during the baby boom, we got more sugary cereals, of course, for children, and at animated characters like Tony the Tiger to sell them. And in the 1990s, quote-unquote organic cereals uh, really rose in popularity, and this carried on into the 2000s, where a lot of emphasis started being put on the health side of cereal, thanks in part to Kellogg's acquisition of Kashi. So that's where we get the high-fiber, low-fat, non-GMO, gluten-free, uh, a lot of the diet trends uh, really followed, and the cereal followed suit with those diet trends. And we also started seeing some virtue signaling and advertisements, but now we're here, now we're to the present. And I hope you enjoyed this episode, but I'm going to be honest, it's not realistic for me to research every single episode. It's getting to the point where I spend twice as much time on this podcast as I do on school. And if you would like to see more episodes coming uh, coming out more frequently from the history of, say, every week or even twice a week, you can email your uh, research papers to thehistoryof365 at gmail.com. I know you all have written research papers for school, uh, research papers about the history of various random things, and it's a win-win because you get more episodes coming back to you and you get recognized as the producer of that episode. You can put that on your resume, and maybe you don't want to be called the producer, you can uh, you can, maybe you want to call yourself the writer, you can do that too. Uh, but I would be happy to vouch for uh, anyone who puts that on their resume. This episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon. <clears throat> no, it's not, because the history of will always be ad-free. And because the history of is not supported by advertisements, you can donate to keep the show going. When you donate, I will read your name and where, where you are from. If you prefer to remain anonymous, just send me an email. And with a $25 donation or more, you can send me a note via email and I will read it on the podcast. Just try to keep it PG because I like to keep this family friendly as much as possible. And to donate, click the donation link in the show notes to make a one-time or monthly donation. And that is a link to PayPal. If you have any questions about the information provided in this episode, or if you would like to send a donation note, please contact me at thehistoryof365 at gmail.com. Have a blessed day, and you've got to promise me something. 
never stop learning.